You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. So thrilled for you to be here. My name is Morgan. I'm a lead pastor, if you're new. Welcome everybody online. I know we've got a ton of folks online today feeling under the weather, uh, as you might imagine, but we're glad, I'm glad we're able to gather in this way today. Let's get into our time in God's Word in this series. Our scripture reading for today is going to be from the book of John, chapter 1. You can follow along on screen or in your Bible. I'll be your scripture reader. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. That's the reading of God's word. All his people said, amen, amen, thank you. Yeah, here's something that we all have in common, I think, as obvious as it may sound or as plain as it may seem. What we have in common is that we all live somewhere. We all live somewhere. Uh, Some of us may live on the streets. We may live outdoors. Many of us, of course, live inside in in homes or houses or high rises. Let me ask you, here's my question. Then where do you live? Where do you live? And I think what's interesting about this question, when you're asked, where do you live, is that it has, uh, you know, a, a number of ways that you could answer the question based on not only who's asking it, but where you are when you're asked. Uh, For example, if you're a citizen of the United States and you are traveling internationally and someone asks you, where do you live? You don't usually give them your home address, do you? No, you just usually say, well, I live in the United States. And you'd be correct. But if you're traveling within the United States and you're asked the question, where do you live? Your answer changes, doesn't it? Last month, again, for example, uh, our family took a little trip outside Texas. And when we were asked because we were, hey, where do you live? We didn't reply with, we live on earth. (laughs) We live in the Northern Hemisphere. No, we didn't even say we live in the United States. We just said we live in Texas. And we were correct, of course. But if you live in Texas and you're asked, where do you live? Well, the answer changes again, right? Because you wouldn't look at someone straight in the eye who was from, say, 
the panhandle of West Texas. And if they asked you, if that person asked you, hey, where do you live? You wouldn't just tell them, I live in Texas. No, that'd be a good way to get a West Texas eyebrow raised at you, right? They would think you were trying to mess with them. You just say, I live in Austin. At which point you'd probably still get a West Texas eyebrow raised at you. But that's just how it goes. But if you're here in Austin and someone asks you again, where do you live? The answer changes again because it takes on another level, another layer of meaning. You could say to that question, I live in central Austin. I live in, in Mueller. Or you could say, I live in Round Rock, Pflugerville, Liberty Hill, Leander, Cedar Park, Manor, Buta, Kyle, Lakeway, Lago, and... I don't know where I, where I forget. Did I get them all? The list, list goes on. And it, 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 you know, it does go on from there. Because not only do you live in a city, you live in a neighborhood. And not only do you live in a neighborhood, like I said, most of us live in a home or apartment. So to the question, where do you live? There are levels of meaning and layers of answers. But I think there's actually a better question with a better word that helps us get there quicker in this conversation. And the reason it's a better question with a better word is because this question, with this word, when you're asked it and you answer it, it lets you know all about who you really are when you answer it. That better question with a better word, I think, is this. Where do you abide? Where do you abide? Where do you abide? Now, again, abide, I know, is a bit of an old school word. But if you were asked that question, where do you abide? You'd probably skip all the hemisphere stuff or drop all the country stuff. And, you know, you just cut straight to it. Your answer would be whatever place you really and truly call home. Home. Where you abide is where the center of your life really is. Where you abide is where you get your life from. Where you abide is where you're re-energized, where you're re-centered, where you are formed. And so, in the same way that we are all going to live somewhere, in some nation, in some city, on some planet, we are all going to abide somewhere. And that somewhere will be the center of our lives. Okay, so let me ask you then, where do you abide? Where do you abide? Where's the center of your life? Now, do you know something that's amazing? Here's what I think is amazing. Jesus Christ, in his final teaching before he went to the cross, one night in a room full of his followers, he looked across the table at a bunch of political revolutionaries, at a bunch of tax collectors, a bunch of fishermen. He looked them right in the eye over a cup of wine and some bread, and he said this. Make me your home. Peter, make me your home. John, James, Andrew, Philip, make me your home. He said this, John 15, 4, abide in me and I in you. And seconds later, he said this, if you'll do this, if you'll abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. If you wanted to summarize them, what the Christian faith means, not only, but if you wanted to insist on what the Christian experience ought to be about, then it would be this. It's what we're looking at, yeah, for the next month, along with the rest of this month, along with hundreds of churches around the world, as you heard. Put it like this. The Christian faith and the Christian life are built around abiding in Jesus Christ and having his word abide in us. So what if we did that? What would our lives look like? 
That's what we're journeying through. So let's begin. Jesus Christ said, make me your home. Let me abide in you. And my words abide. Abide in me, my words abide in you. Three questions about that statement. Number one, how can Jesus say that? How can he look at us and say, make me your home? Number two, why do we need to do this? Why do we need to make him our home? And finally, what happens when we do? How can Jesus say this? Why do we need to do this? And what happens if we'll do this? That's what we're gonna try to ask and answer. Let's begin at number one. Again, and ask, how can Jesus look at humanity and say, make me your home? And the reason I ask this question is because while, yeah, it's a little bit warm, a little bit toasty feeling for some of you to hear Jesus say to you, make me your home. <laughs> this is actually an offensive statement. You should hear that. It actually borders on the ridiculous Think about it. Because imagine if another human being looked at you and said, hey, you, make me your home. Hmm? Imagine if a president, for example, past president, future president, current president, any president, looked out one night on the TV and said, America, make me your home. Like, come on. Imagine if an actor, again, Scarlett Johansson, Idris Elba, you pick and say, hey, make me your home. Imagine if Muhammad, founder of Islam, looked at us at humanity, make me your home. Buddha looks at it, humanity, says, make me your home. I mean, could you imagine, right? I mean, this again, this kind of statement's what? To look out at humanity and say, make me your home as a person? I mean, that's either crazy, like it's ludicrous, or it's offensive, like it's something on the scale of the biggest ego trip ever, or number three, maybe, maybe it's something else altogether. How could Jesus say, make me your home? Well, in this account of the life of Jesus that the gospel writer John gives, John, you may or may not know, was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. And he says something here, we're going to see it, that's astounding about who Jesus is that gives Jesus maybe the right to make this claim. John was a first century Jew. John was uh, strictly monotheistic. John believed God was fundamentally other. God was remote. God was invisible. God was untouchable. God could never, ever, ever become a human being. That was like something that only the pagans with their weird myths believed. And yet, this same John who believed that God could never become human and to believe that would cost John the very essence of his ethnicity, the very core of his religious identity, John said and wrote this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. What's up with this? What's up with the word, word? Why doesn't John just say Jesus? Well, you may know here, if you studied your Bible a bit, the word we get for word is the Greek word logos, where we get our word logic, among other words. But logos meant something specific in John's day. It was actually a triggering term for his audience. If you wanted to, you know how to shake, rattle, roll the Greek people, especially you just use that term logos, because the logos was a term used by the Greek people in that day to describe how the perfect life would be lived, uh, or how the perfect person would act and relate. The Greeks basically said, there's a perfect way to do anything, to make a loaf of bread, cook a pot of soup, uh, give a perfect speech, live a perfect life. And there's like a, a recipe out there in the universe, in the cosmos somewhere, and that can show us how to do that. 
And they thought they could arrive at making that perfect speech or bread or soup or whatever by contemplating it and discussing it. And many of us were forced to read their writings and musings many years ago in school. They believed truth existed, but it was never personal. It was something to be talked about, discussed. But John isn't just writing to Greeks here. No, no, no. In this account, he's also writing to, again, the Jewish people who believe, yeah, that though God was invisible and untouchable, that God was still personal, right? And God had spoken to who? Noah, Moses, Abraham, lots of people in the Hebrew scriptures. So the Jews believed there, yeah, there was a personal God, but they never again believed he could become human. Oh, but to all of them, to Greeks on one hand and to Jews on the other, John says to all of them, hey y'all, the Logos is real. And the Logos became a person. And the Logos is so personal, he's even got a name. Jesus of Nazareth. Now, if you're saying, well, so what? What's the big deal? How does it change my life? Atheist and French philosopher, Luke Ferry, is your guy. He thought about this a lot, wrote a book. He said this in his chapter called, of all things, The Victory of Christianity. He said this, perhaps this distinction leaves you stone cold. After all, what does it matter for us today that the Logos came to mean Christ as far as Christians were concerned? By resting its case upon a definition of the human person and an unprecedented idea of love, Christianity was to have an incalculable effect on the history of ideas. For Greek thought in general, the idea that the Logos could designate anything other than the rational order of the universe was unthinkable. In their eyes, to claim that a mere mortal could constitute the Logos or the word incarnate, as the Gospels express it, was insanity. What exactly was at stake in this apparently innocent change in the meaning of a single word? The answer, nothing less than a revolution in the definition of divinity. Again, did you catch that? Luke Ferry knows what the big deal here is in John 1. He knows if John's right, divinity just got redefined. How? John is saying that God... Perfection became a human, not a human became God. That's not what John's after. That's way different. No, he's saying God, perfection, the Logos, took on human skin. And what did God with human skin on do? He said the word that became flesh, it came and dwelled among us. It made humanity its home. And John says, it's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. I saw it. And John went on later to say, I saw the word heal the human body. I saw the word multiply food. I saw the word raise the dead. I saw the word love the unlovable. And then I heard the word predict his own death and resurrection. Then I saw the word be killed and then brought back to life. And when someone can do all of that and he says to me, Make me your home, I'm gonna believe him. I'm gonna believe him. I'm gonna believe I can and should make that person my home. What am I saying? I'm saying that Jesus of Nazareth can say to you and me of humanity, make me your home. Because he's not another person, he's not another prophet. He was and is God come to show us where our true home really is. And if he is God and he is, then he knows what's best for us. Number one, that's why he can say this to us. Number two then, why do we need to do it? Why do we need to follow him in this way and make our home his person? 
All right, number two here. Run a little thought experiment with me. Ready, class? All right, here we go. Imagine you, because you have been watching too many movies during COVID, stuck at home perhaps, and especially too many for the purposes of this illustration, submarine movies. Let's list them. Das Boot. Come on, somebody. That's old school right there. Uh, Was it U18, K19? They all got numbers and names, I guess. Uh, Hunt for Red October, all right. Now your imagination's really going. You go and buy a submarine yourself. This is actually possible. I looked this up this week. One can do this. For roughly a cool million dollars, you two can own a fairly used submarine. Okay. But let's say, again, your imagination's going. You buy your own sub. And you've been listening out to too much 60s music, and you paint it yellow. yellow. Yeah. And you figure out how to run it. Thank you very much. Doesn't get any better today. I'm just warning. <laughs> Them's the jokes. You take your yellow submarine out into the bottom of the ocean. Man, it's all going well until you unfortunately run into something. It is your first time out with it after all. So you swim out to see what's happened. And unfortunately, because it's dark, you take off your helmet to see a little better. And you then suck in two massive lungfuls of water, salt water. What's going to happen to you? Hmm? What are your lungs going to feel like? Yeah, They're going to experience quickly breakdown. Breakdown. Why? Because the ocean is not their home. They're not going uh, to feel good. The, the, the ocean was not designed to support the function of your lungs. Your lungs are built to breathe air, not water. And from that moment on that you begin to breathe the water, your lungs are going to feel it. Then your bodies will begin to feel it. You're going to want to be somewhere else. Why? Again, the ocean doesn't support who you are. The ocean's not home to humans, all right? And by the way, have you, already, have you ever noticed we're always trying to make stuff feel like home to us, right? I mean, like when you stay somewhere for, for more than a few days. My friend Randy Harris, she's back from Ireland. You may know she was stuck over there. She couldn't get out, stuck in a hotel room trying to get out of Ireland to come back home to the U.S. for eight days. What's she going to do? Make the place feel a little more like hers, right? You're in your office. You adjust a chair, higher or lower. You arrange it to fit you. You put up drawings from your kids that everybody at work wants to see, right? You put up the picture of the vacation home. You're going to own one day to make it feel more like what? Home, yeah. Now, let's go back to your yellow submarine for a moment. Imagine because you're you and not me, and therefore you are mechanically inclined You manage to fix your submarine, yay, just before you run out of air and you come back up topside. Oh, great, but are you home, really? You say you're home, but are you home? Underwater, without a helmet, what's gonna happen? You would have died real quick. But on earth, hear me, the same ultimate result is still gonna happen. (laughs) You're like, well, that escalated quickly, you know. But it's just gonna happen more slowly. You're still gonna die. How can this be home. Even here, you're still breaking down and one day your body or your mind or both are going to give out. And like the the kid from What About Bob said, we're all going to die. Now, you know this, you just don't ever think about this. What it means. Plenty though of non-Christians over history have noticed this and pointed this out over the years, including again, another French atheist, Albert Camus who pointed out, look, our bodies don't fit on earth. We're going to die. We don't fit this world. And as he points out, we try to ignore that. He said this, to put it all in a nutshell, why do we have an eagerness to live in limbs that are destined to rot? For most men, the approach of dinner, 
the arrival of a letter or a smile from a passing girl are enough to help them get around it. But the man who digs into ideas finds that being face-to-face with the fact of death gives rise to disgust and revulsion. And this revolt of the body is what we call nausea. So Camus saying, again, as an atheist, we've got a problem as a species. We don't fit here, and the fact of that is so painful, we'll do anything to ignore it. Why will you die? Hmm? Because this world doesn't fit you. Why does it bother you when someone you love dies? Again, because this world doesn't fit you. And again, you see it not only at a funeral when you go, but all the way back in seed form, even in your office if you've got one. Why do you put stuff in your workspace? Again, because it doesn't fit you. Let's say you put up a picture of people that you love, right? Your family, if you've got one. And then you go home to the people in the pictures. But then when you're at home with the people in the pictures, where do you want to be? On vacation. (laughs) Away from the people. Some of the people in the pictures, right? And then when you're on vacation, where do you want to get back to? Those same people that you were trying to get away from in the first place. When you're at home, you want to be on vacation. When you're on vacation, you want to be home. Why? Because you're not really home in either place. Neither place ultimately fits the deepest desires of your heart. And if by now, hear me, after nearly two years of shutdowns, lockdowns, breakdowns, you feel worn down and torn down, from all the sickness, illness, suffering, and death we've experienced and seen, and you're still not convinced that this world is as it is, is not your ultimate home, I don't know what more can be offered you to convince you of this truth. And especially if an atheist like Camus believed this, come on, surely we can as well. And still, in the middle of all of this, Jesus Christ still looks out at you and me today So looks out at us, across from the wine, that's his blood, and the bread, that's his body, for which he was sacrificed. And he said, look, he says, look what I've done for you. You can trust me. Make me your home. Abide in me. Let my word abide in you. Have its home in you. So what if, what if we believe this, huh? What if we received the word made flesh? What would that do to us? Okay. I want to ask that next. What would then believing this and making Jesus Christ our home turn us into? Because some of you hear this, you're like, well, it sounds good, but what if I do this? Like, what if I follow Jesus? What if I become a Christian? What is that going to make me? Is it going to turn me into one of those people? Hmm? I see over there or one of that kind of person I see over there. What's it going to do to me if I really believe this and grasp it? Okay, number three, what happens if we do this, when we do this? Now, thankfully, to answer this question, John, the writer here, gospel writer here, shows us, I think, the answer to this question because immediately, after all the word made flesh stuff, he gives us a case study. The first individual mentioned in his gospel that's not Jesus is another John named John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin and contemporary. John the Baptist, again, this first individual person in the gospel of John. John the Baptist had a ministry uh, in which he called people to do something. It's a word and action we'd love to hate today. (laughs) He called people to repent. Repent. And when they did repent, they were baptized. They were immersed in water to show that as a sign they had been purified, that they had repented. And that's how John the Baptist got his nickname. Now, unlike Jewish baptism, baptism was around, Jewish baptism, which was in that day for only people of Gentile origin, 
coming into the Jewish faith. John said, no, no, this baptism is for everybody because everybody needs to repent and get right with God. And unlike Jewish baptism, in which converts baptized themselves, John the Baptist baptized people personally to prove a point. You need to be held publicly accountable. John was hardly a modern American. He was unbelievably bold, some might say aggressive, caustic, combative. Uh, You know, at one point he looks out at a group of Pharisees and you know what he says to them? He says, all y'all, you're a bunch of snakes, poisonous ones too. You kill people, they get sick and die when they are around you. John did not trend in his day with the Pharisees. But he did gain quite a following. And at the height of his following and his popularity, so many people were convicted by his preaching and coming to be baptized, people started to wonder if John the Baptist was more than just a human, more than a man. Verse 19, this describes now this conversation, interaction about that question. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites out into the desert, the Jordan River, to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but he confessed freely, I'm not the Messiah. They asked him, well, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. What's going on here? What's going on here is that John, hope to show you, John is showing you the anatomy of a heart that's made Jesus Christ its home. The anatomy of a heart that's made Jesus Christ its home. How can I say that? Well, look at this. On one hand, John the Baptist has a way lower view of himself than who he really is. Look at this. Because when he's asked, are you the Messiah? Like, are you the Christ, the Savior of the world? John says, no, 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 I'm not. And of course, he's right about that. But then when he's asked, well, are you the Elijah? He also says, no. Well, what's the Elijah bit? Jewish people believed that someone like the Old Testament prophet Elijah would show up one day and prepare people's hearts for the coming Messiah. Elijah, centuries before this, was also a bold guy, gruff guy, kind of grouchy guy, right? Who lived in the wilderness. And so when he is asked, are you the new Elijah, the new announcer guy? John the Baptist says, no, 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 I'm not. But later, when Jesus is asked about John the Baptist, Jesus actually calls him the Elijah who is to come. John's the Elijah who is to come. John says, I'm not the Elijah. Jesus says, yep, you are. And then when John's asked, well, who are you then? He says this, I'm just the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. He says, I'm just a voice. I'm just a nobody. And then he goes even further and says, he's less than a nobody. Look at this verse 27. John says, Jesus is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. John the Baptist says, I'm just a voice. I'm just a nobody. I'm not even worthy to do a menial task, like untie Jesus' shoes. But later Jesus says this, no, no, no. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. John says, I'm a nobody. But Jesus says, no, you're the greatest human who's ever been born up until now. What gives? How can John be so bold and yet so humble at the same time? Here's how. John has made his home, his abiding place, the identity and the person of Jesus Christ. I was playing college baseball a few years ago as a second baseman at University of Houston. One day we actually had the current shortstop at the time for the Texas Rangers. 
The major league shortstop at Texas Rangers came out to our practice uh, one day in the offseason, and he was like a god among men out there. Man among boys. Tall, muscular, chiseled. I mean, he made fielding and throwing a baseball look absolutely effortless. His feet floated. Arm like a cannon. It was like watching grace personified, and we all stared at him. Like, this is not fair. And no one wanted to go after him and just take a ground ball, throw it over to first base. And, you know, after you watched him, I certainly didn't. I tried to get out of it. It was the coach was like, Morgan, get in there and take a ground ball. I was like, no. He's like, why not? I said, I'm just a voice. <laughs> I'm not even worthy to lace up his cleats, you know. Why? When you're around and you grasp real greatness, it humbles you. Humbles you, right? And if that's how we are with others in a limited way, how much more should we be humbled when we grasp that a God of glory and infinite power and love wants to come and has come near us like John said, we saw it. And then what would it, how would it change us if we realized the greatness and glory, that same greatness and glory wanted to share everything he had with us. What would that do to us? I think it might turn us a little bit more into someone like a John the Baptist. See, John had found a home in the heart of Jesus Christ and it turned him into a world changer. Listen, when you know you are so bad, God had to send someone to save you, humbles you. But when you know you're so loved by God, he was glad to save you. It lifts you, frees you. And that's what abiding in the heart of Christ does. It humbles you so that even on your best day, when you're killing it, you say, I'm just a nobody. But on your worst days, rejected and despised by men, you know, I am loved and desired by the God of the universe. And that can make you incredibly confident. Let me tell you, what can propel your heart and your life past your limits and your flaws and yes, even your own Enneagram number for those of you who All the criticism the crowd is just what I'm saying today. Make Jesus Christ your home. Let's apply this now just briefly in one way before I close. Simple question, how can, we, how can we do this? How can we abide, make our home in Christ? Actually, he already told us. Jesus gives us that one way. In John 15, he says, if you abide in me, and look at this, this reciprocal relationship, my words abide in you. He's saying, let my words plural, abide in you. Are you letting his word live in you? Yeah, for sure, the gospels, read those, come on. Old Testament, Hebrew scriptures. Jesus said, that's all of that. It's all about me anyway. New Testament, that's about Jesus from people who saw him, those own eyewitnesses. Do you make them the word of God, his words, your dwelling? Hmm? Your home, like every day you're there. Do you sing songs with words about Jesus? Not just stuff on the radio or your favorite playlist, something with words about him. What about podcasts you listen to? Not just about politics, hmm. your perspective, popular people in Hollywood. No, but with words, teaching about Jesus. Where do you live? Where do you abide? Are we creating space for the word of God to live in us? Let me tell you, some of us, we live like hoarders, spiritually speaking. So much clutter, so much clutter, so much clutter. When our lives are clogged with stuff, sometimes it means you got to clear some space to make a place for the word of God. Let me encourage you then. This week, come on church, you heard all this stuff. Don't miss your moment. 
Don't miss your moment. This is it. Take advantage of these prayer meetings. Come to the prayer meetings. Come and pray. Read those devotionals. Watch the videos. We're gonna, you don't have to look for them. We're going to set them in your inbox. Watch what happens to you if you'll do this. I want to invite you this week especially to make Jesus Christ your home and watch what happens. I hope by the end of this week we could all say this. So I'll abide in Christ, in him and him alone, where my life is hidden and where I've made my home. Nowhere else my refuge, no one else my guide, nothing more that I desire. I've come simply to abide. I hope you can say amen to this. Let me take a moment and pray for you. We're going to ask for God's help, the grace of God. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we thank you for these truths. We thank you for holding out this hope to humanity. Nowhere else is our true home. Even if we, we feel a bit at home in our houses, we feel a bit at home in a local church, we feel a bit at home in a country, it's still not our ultimate home. Our hearts and lives were made and meant for you. We forget this with noise and traffic and internet schedules, sadness. We forget this. Our hearts were made for you. Would you recapture our imagination and fill us afresh this week as we abide in Christ, I pray. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.